Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Reuben, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were seventy persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh's supply cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar, in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shipra and the name of the other Puah. And he said to them, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would concentrate our hearts, that you would help us to listen and to pay attention to your word. Teach us to hear your promises. Help us to admire the courage of the midwives and to imitate it. And help us to claim your promises and to know that you save even in the darkest hour, especially in the darkest hour. Lord, help us tonight. Give us the grace to listen to your word. And to be changed by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in January 1942, 
The Third Reich saw victory on the horizon. Quote, Nazi officials believed that the war was almost won and that Germany would shortly be ruling all of Europe, including England and Ireland. So the chief of the extermination group within the SS called a meeting of the various ministries and agencies of the SS. At this meeting, we have the, the minutes from this meeting. At this meeting, he told them the following. The Jews should now, in the course of the final solution, be brought to the East for use as labor. In big labor gangs with separation of sexes, the Jews capable of work are brought to these areas and employed in road building, in which task undoubtedly a great part will fall through natural diminution. The remnant that finally is able to survive all this, since this is undoubtedly the part with the strongest resistance, must be treated accordingly since these people, representing a natural selection, are to be regarded as the germ cell of a new Jewish development. The author, this is William Shirer, who was an American journalist in Berlin until uh, the U.S. declared war on Germany in December of 1941. Shirer goes on to recount that among high Nazi circles, none of them understood at this time, not, in fact, until toward the end of 1942, when it was too late, how valuable the millions of Jews might be to the Reich as slave labor. At this point, they only understood that working millions of Jews to death on the roads of Russia might take some time. Consequently, long before these unfortunate people could be worked to death, in most cases the attempt was not even begun. Hitler and Himmler decided to dispatch them by quicker means. The attitude, and even almost the very words, certainly the actions of the Bronze Age Pharaoh, are replicated once again in the language and thought forms and actions of the 20th century. Let us deal shrewdly with them that undoubtedly a great part may fall through natural diminution. Genocide is easy. And this chapter clearly presents that to us. Genocide is provoked by God keeping his promises. And then Pharaoh starts with working them to death and eventually comes all the way to simply killing them outright, much as the Third Reich was to do some three and a half millennia later. But what does Exodus tell us about God? Well, God, even in these circumstances of genocide, keeps his promise of fertility... God keeps his promise. Pharaoh fights to stop God from keeping that promise. Pharaoh stands up as the enemy of God and says, God, whatever you're doing, I'm against it. I do not know the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Pharaoh stands up as the enemy of God and we read this and we say, Who's going to win? Well, the rest of Exodus tells us who's going to win. But this passage, nonetheless, shows us God keeps His promises even at the darkest time, even as things slip toward genocide. So we start the chapter with a review of who came to Egypt 
70, 70 persons came to Egypt. The man and his household, the sons of Jacob, they came and there were 70 of them. And God, of course, had promised Abraham a mighty seed, a numerous seed, lots of descendants. And verse 7 of Exodus 1 recounts the fulfillment of that promise. Seven expressions for increase are used in this verse. As the 20th century rabbi points out, Seven expressions, a number indicative of perfection. Number one, were fruitful. Number two, and teemed. Three, and multiplied. Four, and grew mighty. Five, with strength. Six, strongly. Seven, so that the land was filled with them. Nowhere else in the Bible are seven expressions used for growth. But here, seven expressions show how God kept his promises to give Abraham a seed. God gave Abraham a seed in such an overwhelming way that by verse 9, Pharaoh is claiming that there are more Israelites than Egyptians. People of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Now, different Commentators attempt to reconstruct this in different ways. The text is simultaneously very pointed and direct and also very vague. They multiplied. They grew mighty. But how many? Right? It doesn't say their rate of growth was an annual 8%. We have in very general terms that they started with 12, the 12 sons of Jacob, And 430 years later, they ended with 603,550 men over 20 years old. That's in Numbers 146. So we have from 12 brothers to 603,000 men across 430 years. But what I've done here, and I've made this little table for you math wizards out there, we know, certainly in our own era, that Statistical projections like this can drive policy. And Pharaoh, no doubt, had his own bean counters who were perfectly capable of doing statistical projections along these lines. And they could bring a chart like this to Pharaoh and say, our census takers have determined this chart is built on 12 surviving children per woman. Or six surviving children per couple. Or, no. Six per woman, 12 per couple, essentially six times larger every year. So we go from 12 to 72, and then you multiply 72 times six, and that's 432. So each couple has 12 children. You take two and you turn that into 12. That's six times growth with each generation. Now, turn back to Genesis 15 for just a moment. Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham. Uh, Genesis 15, 13. God said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward they will come out with great possessions. 
So God says, they're going to Egypt, they're going to suffer there 400 years. But then go down to verse 16 of Genesis 15. In the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So we have two measures of the time served in Egypt. One measure is four centuries. The other measure is four generations. Now, if we go forward further in Exodus, as I have in this chart, I have the names of the people in each generation in Moses' line marked over on the right-hand side of the chart. So the first generation among the twelve brothers was Levi, the son of Jacob. He had a son named Kohath, who was the second generation. Kohath's son was Amram, third generation. Amram's son is Moses, the fourth generation. And so the text tells us they did come out in the fourth generation. Moses is the fourth generation, and he leads the people of God out of Egypt. But he doesn't do that until he's 80 years old. So again, this is purely a hypothetical reconstruction. We don't know, of course, that Israel multiplied six times with each generation. We don't know what size each generation was. But looking at this chart, it's entirely possible that when Moses is born, there are only about 250 Israelite families. That we get down to the third generation and there's 400 some Israelites. They pair off and that's 200 some families. And so that that uh, supposition explains many of the details in the chapter. Right. Why does Pharaoh decide it's going to be so easy to take on the Hebrews? Well, it's entirely possible that Pharaoh was looking at committing genocide against just a few dozen prime age men. He's not trying to take on somebody, right? You go down to the ninth generation there, that's 20 million people. We're not looking at the ninth generation, we're looking at the third generation when Moses is a baby. And there are 400 adults with, most of them have a lot of kids. But it's really still a very small community. And Pharaoh would feel that it was fairly easy to take on this community. So many commentators over the centuries have wondered how if there were so many Israelites, they only needed two midwives. Well, if there's only 200 families, that could explain how they only needed two midwives. But anyway, the other thing about this chart, certainly we can look at it and say statistical projections like this drive policy. We know that from our own era. And we can further say that an Egyptian grandfather might be perfectly justified in saying, when I was a kid, there were 36 times fewer Hebrews than there are now. Right. Any group within a society that's multiplying like this is going to get noticed. According to the number in numbers of the people who left, somewhere around 600,000 men, we're looking at approximately the eighth generation by the time of the Exodus. So one way to explain that is that Kohath, Amram, and Moses were all born very, very late in their generations. 
Their fathers were each approximately 100 years old at the time of their birth. And so Moses is technically fourth generation, and yet he lives to see there being over three million Israelites. Something along those lines. So again, this is a speculative reconstruction. I think it helps us understand some of the details of the chapter. The real question, of course, is blessing. God kept his promises. He blessed Israel with reproduction to the point where they caught the attention of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, I can't handle this kind of blessing. Minorities are fine as long as they stay minorities. Right? The bean counters can run this thing into the future and say, Pharaoh, by the 10th generation, there's going to be 120 million of them. By the 12th generation, there's going to be 4.3 billion Israelites if these current trends continue. And we know that Pharaoh would say, yikes, I don't want that. Clearly he says that, right? There are already too many. Let's kill them. So what if God actually blessed us like this? If he blessed us with children who made a difference in the world. If he blessed us as a church with becoming a force in our society. So that people were kind of had to sit up and take notice and say, wow, that church is really doing something. That church is becoming something. Would we be able to handle that? The Israelites, it looks like, had a hard time handling the amount of blessing that God dumped on them. We need to be ready to claim the promises of God, even with the understanding that they can cause trouble if you multiply like this. And there are more and more devout Christians and the land is becoming filled with our type. So Pharaoh sees them multiply. Uh, Potentially, certainly, he's looking at a chart like this and saying, they're not doubling every 20 years, they're increasing by six times every 20 years. That means that the 12th generation is only 200 years, 240 years in the future. That's not very far away. So what is his solution? Well, step one, fairly simple. Set taskmasters over them and make them work. Verse 11. Just like Hitler. We'll send them out to build roads until they die. Of course, what both Hitler and Pharaoh failed to reckon with is that human beings are made to work. It takes a good bit of work to work a typical person to death. And Pharaoh quickly got wise to that. But notice how the more they afflicted them, verse 12, the more they multiplied and grew. Is that how we think? Ooh, God's blessing is coming on me. And it's making my life difficult. So I'm going to claim more of his blessing. God is keeping his promises to me and I'm having a hard time dealing with the fallout from that. 
right? What if God keeps his promises to sanctify you and you end up telling your boss, you know, I used to do dishonest things for you and I can't do that anymore. Your life gets more difficult because God's promise came true for you. God gave you a sensitive conscience that won't let you sin. Or similarly, as in this instance, what if God sends you a child and you say, whoa, I'm not ready for that. I'm getting persecuted for that. They don't like me already because I have too many children. God, why did you send this one? Again, are you willing to claim the promises of God even if they're making your life more difficult? That's a question that this text of Exodus brings to our attention. Above all, right, if your life really is dedicated and devoted to Jesus, and you're around people who don't understand that, who think that's dumb, who let you know what an idiot you are for living that way, will you still claim Jesus' promise? Do you still want to live close to him? So Pharisees, they're not dying. I'm not working them to death. So he ups the ante, verse 13. So the Egyptians made them serve with rigor. And verse 14 actually contains seven different words for bondage and work in the Hebrew. Again, it's a perfect kind of rigorous, difficult service. Labor, toil, pain. Some of you have worked with mortar and brick. Others of you have done field work. It's hard. That was how they made their lives bitter. Second step to genocide. Don't just work them to death. Work them bitterly to death. So clearly these first two steps don't work. So Pharaoh moves, escalates to step three. And he calls the Hebrew midwives. Shipra and Pua, or as we would say in English, Bonnie and Sparkle is the meaning of their names. Notice how Pharaoh is not named, but the midwives are named. Pharaoh is not important enough to rate getting named. The midwives are important enough that Moses drops their names right here in the text to be remembered. Pharaoh's name does not matter. Jesus loves children, so Satan hates them. Pharaoh sees that his attack on the men is not working, and so he goes, moves to the children. And then he has this suggestion, kill the sons, let the daughters live. It seems, apparently, that Pharaoh is trying to be devious here. And he's instructing the midwives, if it's a son that's born, they catch him, and then, right, secretly break its neck or choke it, or do something just before the mom sees it. And then, Oh no, looks like you have a stillborn baby. Well, that's really sad. That's Pharaoh's suggestion, right? He's not saying, hey, just waltz in there and kill the kid in front of everybody. Because obviously, the first time you do that is the last time you get hired as a midwife. And Pharaoh is dumb, the original rebel without a clue. All the commentators talk about what an idiot Pharaoh is. But he's probably not quite that dumb. He seems to suggest secretly killing the children. 
and to just have an epidemic of stillborn baby boys among the Hebrews. Now, why does Pharaoh do this? Well, he doesn't want them to leave the land. Verse 10. He doesn't want them to join the enemies. Essentially, to be totally anachronistic, we could call Pharaoh a nationalist. Uh, we could apply to him the words that Haman used in our passage in Esther. Haman utters that a perfect description of this nationalist idea that these people don't fit in. What did he say? There's a certain people, their laws are different, and they don't keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. A cancer on the body politic. Why should we kill them? The answer is literally, because they're different. And Pharaoh, we can guess, like Haman, feels this same way. Why get rid of them? Because they're different. And of course, what's the difference? Well, the difference is their God. Satan hates children. Jesus hates those who hate children. Right? Anyone who offends a child would be better off having the millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. So Pharaoh takes on God and this wants to kill his sons. Out of Egypt have I called my son. God instead slays Pharaoh's son and then slays Pharaoh too. The people of God are called to love children. Their own children. Children of their friends and neighbors. Children throughout our country and our world. You can do that by having children, by adopting children, by ministering to parents and encouraging parents as they take care of their children, by standing against laws that allow children to be harmed with impunity. All of these things are appropriate for us, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, right? Pharaoh literally wears a snake on his head and moves to kill children. No surprise there. Ultimately, this attack is on the line of promise and in its attempt to get rid of Jesus by killing his ancestor, right? That, why is that plot so popular in sci-fi? Sending somebody back from the future to kill an ancestor of somebody who's going to do something, well, because Satan did it. And much of the Old Testament is about Satan's attempts to wipe out the promise line, including here in Exodus. So the midwives refuse to secretly kill the babies. Pharaoh finds out, of course, that the midwives are God-fearers. And he calls them on the carpet. Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? So the midwives give a very clever answer. One commentator commented that this answer is so clever that it's fooled not only Pharaoh, but many generations of commentators. But is the answer fooling anybody, or is it the literal truth? You know, we actually don't know. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are lively. The word could also be translated, they are like animals, and give birth before the midwives come to them. Now, the question arises, well, if they always do that, why do they have midwives? 
But the response could be, well, they don't always do it. It's just God's blessing right now when the midwives are a threat. But we don't really know whether this is the whole truth or whether this is a partial truth. We'll talk about that more next week. But Pharaoh drops that, lets the midwives go, and simply, like Hitler so quickly did, takes the open route to genocide. Every Egyptian, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son who is born, you shall cast into the river. If it's a son, it goes in the river. If you're an Egyptian, you have full rights if you see a baby Hebrew boy to grab him and check him in the Nile. And again, we know from our experience of the 20th century, it's pretty easy to mobilize a whole population to commit genocide. That God-fearers like the midwives are rare. And people who will go along with the establishment consensus and say, well, these Hebrews are a threat, man. They gotta go. They don't live our way of life. They're not Egyptian. They don't belong. It's not fitting that they should be here into the river. Pharaoh mobilizes the population to do that. Leading for us, of course, the question, would I defy such an edict? Do I fear God enough to blow off not only the powers that be, but also the people I care about? My friends are doing it. My neighbors are doing it. Even in many cases, my church is doing it. Can I say, no, I serve God. I fear God and I will not join your pogrom. In fact, I will go stand with the people whose homes you're burning. Go ahead and burn mine. Go ahead and throw my kids in the river. Call me a Jew, even though I'm not. Well, it doesn't tell us whether any Egyptians did that. Though the midwives might have been Egyptian. It's a little hard to tell. The text says the midwives of the Hebrews in verse 15, not the Hebrew midwives. And they could have been Egyptian women who worked for the Hebrews. But again, the chapter doesn't tell us about resistance to the edict. It tells us about the edict. And it leaves us with this question, how can God save now? The whole might of Egypt is mobilized against this little community, which, as we said, might be 200 families. Might be a lot more than that. It might be 100,000 people. But regardless, the most powerful nation on the planet at that time is against the people of God. How is God going to save? You can criticize Pharaoh's policy as irrational. Most of the commentators do. They can't refrain from talking about how stupid Pharaoh is. But that's not the point. Of course sin is irrational. The point is rather, what is God going to do when faced with somebody this evil? How can God save when a tyrant arises like this? How can God save when our nation is slipping into the hands of the ungodly? How can God save if we keep giving his enemies occasion to blaspheme? How can God save under, right, name your scenario. 
Like Psalm 77, Exodus is the book for you, the God who saves under the harshest conditions you can imagine. Turn your eyes on the God of the Exodus. He delivered. He'll deliver again. Genocide is easy. God can and does let it happen. But he never lets it happen with impunity and he won't let it go on forever. He'll intervene and in the end, justice will be done. We know that God will save. It's going to be 80 more years after the birth of Moses before the Israelites come out of Egypt. God is going to save. So wait on the Lord and fear him. We'll talk next week about how to live during genocide and look more closely at the midwives. But for now, trust God to keep his promises. And know that he will. Wait on the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to wait on you and be of good courage and that you would strengthen our hearts. Lord, if we go up against a tyrant, if we go up against our own sinful flesh, if we deal with this world that lies in the lap of Satan, wherever you put us, whatever our place, whatever our calling, help us, Father. Deliver us from ungodliness. Deliver us from fear of any human creature and help us instead to fear God. We pray against the genocide heirs wherever they are. In, you, uh, in Rwanda, in Yemen, in Bangladesh, and Myanmar and beyond, Father. You know those who would try to kill their neighbors because they're different and we ask that you would stop them. We pray, Father, that there would be peace on earth because your Son reigns and because all peoples bow before him, all nations serve him. We ask that his kingdom would come, his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. Help us to wait and quietly hope And let us see your salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.